Hey, what's up? Uh, vandaag is 26 oktober. Uh, it's two days before the World Cup final. And yeah, here we go. Exciting times. Welcome to the show. So uh, today on the show, we've got someone uh, flipping awesome. His name is Dan Corder. He is the, um, I sound like an American because I stayed there for a while and I never shook off the accent. Um, his name is Dan Corder. He's the breakfast show host on 5FM. And um, I'm just a massive fan of Dan because in a lot of sense, I see a lot of myself in him, in the way how he creates content and just he's, uh, he's controversial at times. Um, he's someone that's very outspoken and he's also someone that loves history and that likes to talk about the difficult things that people don't want to talk about normally. And because also he's on a massive uh, radio station, I think there's more pressure on those guys. to Well, more pressure to, to actually say things, but also to be careful of what you say at times. And um, yeah, I slid into his DMs on Instagram and told him I'm a fan and um, asked him if he would be keen to come to the show. And he instantly said yes and it's just so so freaking awesome uh, uh it's yeah i'm just humbled by by people saying yes that want to talk to us um with regards to these things so i really hope you enjoy the conversation um it's uh as as i always say with these things um it's just our opinion it's the way we see things it's not uh, it's it's just uh yeah how we see and how we experience life and there might be things that you disagree with, and there might be viewpoints that you think uh, is stupid, and you wanna, um, yeah, it's obviously fine to, to disagree and not uh, think like we do. We encourage everyone to make up their own thoughts, and we just, I just like to have these conversations so that I can come closer to whatever the answer is. And um, when we talk about history, and we talk about apartheid, and we talk about white people and rugby and Tom Curry or whatever, it's, uh, yeah, it's it's stuff we're interested in. And um, the, like I always say, the more we talk about the difficult things, the easier it gets to talk about them. And uh, we want to be part of that. So the conversation was just epic on how Dan grew up and his love for history and how he fell into uh, to radio. And now he's got this incredible podcast where he just got uh, Musi Maimane on the show and Herman Mashaba. Um, that's like really hard hitting questions that they asked him. Um, so it's just Dan is one of those people that I think and I know he's gonna. Uh, he's still he's he's making a massive impact already in South Africa, but I think he's gonna yeah, he's he's still gonna do massive things with regards to uh, to have, like changing the country for for the better. He's already doing it. If you can check him out on TikTok, he makes these incredible historical videos where he teaches you about like interesting things about like the Spermokarakpi team or uh, or uh, white economical empowerment or BE. I can't remember now. White capital. I can't remember the topic. See, my research is terrible. But my point is. He does incredible work with regards to history and he unpacks it in a really fun, informative way. Uh, and uh, yeah, he's just someone that, that, uh, that I can um, recommend you follow on social media to uh, yeah, to learn a lot and to get a fresh perspective on uh, on things. So yeah, as usual, it was me and Laura Lee and we had a lack of chat. And I'm doing this little recording on my phone because I lost my cable for my microphone classic. So uh, this is a cell phone intro, but I hope it sounds lucky. And thank you for listening to the show. If you like it, uh, please share it with your friends. And uh, yeah, let's hope the book wins this weekend. <laughs> yeah, yeah, this is, uh, this is luckily not live radio. Um, but dude, Jesse, I just want to thank you so much for replying on my of course. my DM. I slid in there like a, <laughs> like a teenager fan, man. Jesse. I just want to say thanks. I'm the third uh, English speaker 
on the <laughs> yeah, that's on the show after yeah. my Josie and Glenn. That is shocking. Yeah. Well, they're up from fear and said yes. So hopefully, you'll be uh, in here next oh, week. Oh, excellent! But uh, you're definitely, I think, the most high profile of everyone that's oh. on the. On yet, with regards to English, let's just say. English. Yes, with with regards to English. Although I love Glenn and Majosi. Majosi was my first ever ra- a music radio interview for a commercial radio station in for Good Up FM Week and Breakfast in like two thousand. Uh, first commercial, so UCT Radio was the start. Start. Uh, UCT, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You went to. Um, also went to Rhodes. Rhodes, I went to um, for what I describe as my six month bender. <laughs> Uh, where I found myself and then lost myself and then came back. Uh, where did you find up. yourself? At uh, the, the bottom of Friars. <laughs> <laughs> you know Friars. Okay. Are you familiar? That's funny. Uh-uh. So you that gr- the really, that's the really dark one. No, that's Monastery. No. Monastery no longer exists. It's uh, now it? called like 39 on New or has been since the last time I was there. But yeah, I... Is Rat and Parrot. Uh-huh. Friars is the place which was confirmed by GQ to be the most likely place to get lucky in South Africa on any given night. Oh. It was also the place <laughs> where like there was... a random um, survey. Like yeah, there were one round shots before 10, six days a week because oh, they were trying to get our goodness. pre-drinks to be there. Oh, my word. Uh, and Friars was also the place where, like, they would use the spotlight from the DJ booth, not to hype the crowd, but to put a spotlight on people who were actively trying to pump on. Can I say that on this yeah, podcast? Yeah. Okay, <laughs> <laughs> on this, um, on the dance floor, they'd go up against the wall, and pants were starting to come down because people were so drunk. And so the spotlight was just used to show us them, so that they could feel social shame and stop, guys. It's so hard to explain roads to people who haven't been there. But I don't know if you... If I don't know how people study there. It's, it's Oh, nobody dark. does, like, actually. <laughs> but, 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 but if I could just tell you, if you ever one night have the pleasure of seeing two or three rodents, which is what we call ourselves, mm-hmm. road, road students, mm-hmm. see each other in a bar, the kind of like thrill and joy, even if we've never met, of the shared trauma bonding that we went through like it's like watching people who both went to war to get uh, like in the same war and it's like i can't believe you're alive let's just trauma bond like that's what that's what it's always like when people go listen yeah butiki we went to the grains when we were younger you're like yeah well i started at the roads for six months okay that was my grains but a good friend of mine dolph went to potch and he said that nw also pushes you to the brink rural willemse yes dude i know rural willemse so i was so Stralde kind of started out and then uh, there was this Afrikaans rock spider competition where you could enter a rock band as a school kid. Amazing. And then Rudolf was like a 14-year-old uh, in a band and I was like their, their, their band coach oh, during that. I know Rudolf. He was an incredible like, athlete, actually. He was like was an he? SA, SA um, hurdles athlete, I think. He was incredible. What, a track athlete? Yeah. I love track he and a, he never mentioned this to me, not even once. I think it was hurdles. He was like an SA champ. He's incredible. Dolph, also one thing, uh, one thing about Dolph is that he does not text. He only does phone calls. And I that like is that. I appreciate yeah. that. so boomer, but he does it in such a cool way. I He's hate like, phone calls. <laughs> yes, dude, I hate doing my phone rings. But it's never like, answers his I phone. Really? Ever. It's just, it's just <laughs> like, ever. it could have been a voice that just voiced at me. <laughs> but I voiced that there's, there's a, a, a very, I don't want to mention his name, but um, famous vocalist of the one of the biggest Afrikaans bands. And mm-hmm. I started voice noting him. And the first thing he replies like, Please don't voice at me. <laughs> Type what you want to say. But like super serious. Just, <laughs> I hate voices. I'm like, yeah, okay, sorry, bro. <laughs> but, uh, okay, so you grew up in Cape Town. Are you from Western Cape? I grew up on UCT campus. 
Both of my parents are academics. Oh, my no dad way. was the dean of law at UCT for a long time. And my mother is an incredible researcher of large chunks of South African history that only she knows because that history is only contained in letters written by an ancestor of ours in such bad handwriting. Then, And this is true. My, my mother's the only person in the world who can read these letters because oh. she spent years training herself to read this terrible handwriting of this woman who was like friends with Olive Schreiner and like knew Mahatma Gandhi. And so what? I was raised in this home where like... I was born and raised in you, like on campus, mm. uh, and such a hyper academic. Your guys, that sounds exhausting. Dinner table on a Sunday was like so third or fourth wave feminism. It's like like <laughs> and, and like oh, everyone is hoying. Like, how do you want your potatoes with some <laughs> feminism on the side? <laughs> and then our, is that why you didn't want to go to UCT? You wanted to get away from all. Well, that. no, actually, I went to UCT for six months of the first half of first year, and then I realized that I went to Westford High School, and Westford is the biggest feeder school to UCT. I've only like, went to Westford, I think. Yeah. So, so it's yeah. like 170 Westford metrics on average per year, of which 167 go to UCT. Do you know Tristan De Beer? No, no, he might be a bit younger. No. So I um, went to UCT and it felt like grade 13. And it was right. like everybody had arrived with this cuck baggage from school. And it's like you were still being thought of as the puberty mess you had when you were 14. Mm. And when you're 18, that's the first moment in your life when you're old enough and brave enough and have gone through enough to, to figure out who you actually are mm. and who you want to be. And I just thought to myself, yes, no, there's no way. And also, other thing about going to university is suddenly the bullies realize that they are nobody with no power. It's and so amazing. suddenly Oaksu treated me like shit in school. Like, dad, it's so good to see you. Because <laughs> they were just desperate for a friendly face because there were 26,000 people and they were nobody. And I just thought, oh, I need to do something else. So I went to Rhodes mm. for six months. Sure. And that's where the Rhodes story happened. Second half of first year. Yeah. But that, ma that makes sense. Because well, like one of my questions for you, because I, obviously I follow you on social media and you... you you make incredible historical content. And I'm like, do you sit and like quickly smash out a Wikipedia sesh before you make a video? Or, no. or is it just like it comes natural? Like you Because no. uh, I wanted to ask, when did you become, for lack of a better word, woke? Yeah. But like that term, with my generation, I'm I'm 84 baby. So I'm 40 <laughs> years old right now. So we okay. had to like, there was a time where you had to like become enlightened or totally. woke. Well, I think, I don't know how old you are, but your generation, I think just grew up differently where it's like, well, what, what does woke mm. mean? I just, this is mm. the way I've, I've been brought but up. But obviously you have parents who are very socially aware. Totally. So kind of left, more kind of left aligning. That's how you grow oh, up. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> <laughs> for the true ability for you guys to understand my upbringing, um, like both of my parents were in the white version of the struggle. <laughs> Do you guys know what I mean? <laughs> There's the white version of the struggle and then there is the struggle. I always have to say that because white people who say their parents in the struggle, I'm like, unless you're the child of Albie Sachs, your parents were not in the real struggle. Yeah, yeah. They're in the white version of the struggle. Okay, cool. We can clarify that. But just so you guys understand, my my father was at Codessa and was the chief architect of the Bill of Rights. Wow. He dude. was the guy who like wrote the, the bulk of it. And and so like why I didn't pursue academia slightly more hardcore is like, yo guys, the shadow. I did law for three weeks. <laughs> it's just like I can't be this guy's son right now. Um but no, like we were raised um, by two very progressive parents for whom the end of apartheid was considered one of the great moments of their lives after which life, 
like was different because they dedicated so many of so much of their lives mm. and their thinking power, and their brain power, and their emotion, and their energy. My mother was in student unions where a friend of hers turned out to be uh, an apartheid plant spy and like ratted on people. So like that was always just part of the conversation at home um, was South Africa's history. And then my mother being a freak, um, we would have holiday road trips across South Africa, which were not, we're going to go to a nice beach. It was like my mother would pick a theme and the theme would be like wars of South Africa. And then the road trip would be to like all of the wars. And then she wow. would tell us about the wars in the car and then we'd be expected to know. Uh, we did another road trip, which was like, the rocks and geology of South Africa. And we went to the Karoo National Park and my mother was like, this stone is the reason why this happened. Yeah. And that was just how we were raised. How so did like, you relate to other kids? Oh, very badly because, <laughs> because my parents were also like, they were like nine, in the 90s, they were parents for the first time. So they thought that like TV was the devil and they thought that cell phones were the devil. So Dan got ostracized at school so quickly because I didn't know what Pokemon was. I had never seen dub on television. I was allowed to watch one thing. It was a Seven Dalan omnibus for my, for my Afrikaans. <laughs> Seven Dalan Afrikaans, you know, so that I could get a good Afrikaans mark in school. I wasn't allowed to get a phone until I was being openly bullied at school for not having one. Yeah. Therefore, you can't have friends. You can't be on Mixit or, or, or anything. And then I think my parents softened up after that, but they were like, they were like hardcore academic but first parents. The, the irony is always like, if you look at like the, the conversation with parents is like when you hear a story like that, like from outside looking in, you think like, oh man, it must've been A, B or C or rough or whatever. But then you look at the manual art today and it's like, that's all the stuff that shaped you. And it's like, you take Absolutely. the Venuses or like take any, any sportsman. The majority of sports people that like up there has got like either a semi-abusive parent because they yeah, know yeah. what it takes to get there. Yeah. Um, like the Venus is the, the, the film about the father that was mm -hmm. hectic. Yeah. But I mean, look at your life now, which is like, mm. it's like you, you can be like, not criticism, but like you can look at your back going like it was rough, but at the end, it like we are now, it's incredible. Because yeah. I mean, look at the position you're in, like for someone that didn't, was the last kid to have a phone, <laughs> the last kid to like start watching TV. I mean, you on like the biggest, one of the biggest radio stations in the country, you've got yeah. like your voice is being heard by more people than ever. And you're not, you're not a law student. You didn't study law. And the influence you have now is like, is is incredible with i mean yeah. look at your, your, your little tiktok stuff if you would have done law and try to teach people or historian no one would have listened but the way you you unpack it that little one to two minute videos it's super interesting and that's like such a rare gift thanks man i really appreciate that yeah my parents um to be clear i loved my childhood i'm not trying to say that it was bad although i was bullied relentlessly at school and there were other reasons for that like red hair guys <laughs> it's yeah, just like yeah. so straightforwardly a silly thing to be bullied for but i don't know if you guys remember summer heights high came out when i was in grade eight and i was just like you're screwed um <laughs> but but my home life was lovely like i mean my dad um would just play cricket with me in the garden and we'd watch um the box play and we'd watch the protest play and my dad had a season ticket newness cricket ground so that's where i was kind of like raised yeah. loving sports and like like when we did well in school like the gift we were given was a book and so like like i've just come out like my parents are just the most knowledgeable people like mm -hmm. if i hear an incredible story and i go to them i'm like they're not gonna know they, they will know <laughs> they have they already yeah know. i uh, always I envied when i went to uct for the first i like envied kids who grew up in such progressive households so, and i'm sure it wasn't all good but i just it just sounded like it was just free and i don't know so laura lee is from a small town called um stella autistal oh, so autistal dude Northwest. Oh, no, I know that. Was we, we went there on a road trip. Did you? <laughs> yeah. Oh my goodness! It's O T T O. Hey. Yes. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Okay. Yes. Yeah. I don't know what it was like to grow up there. Sorry. Mm. But yeah. I mean, that's that's super Afrikaans. Okay. Very um, 
But you don't want to say like it's a right. You can't. You don't want to say it's a it's a racist town because well, every town has got their races. But in general, the stereotype of like the northwest and all those little Buddha towns is is like not a lot of progressive. It's a stereotype for a reason. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. And then she went to go and study at at uh, at UCT. So I think that like everyone. I mean, I grew up in Pochestrium. Pochestrium was like in 1992. Pochestrium <coughs> won the referendum by saying nope don't wow. stop apartheid wow. uh, that's like half of okay. the half of the streets is like a Evia street or sure. the clark street mm. so there's lots of i mean the bruderbond museum dude the most fascinating place under underneath the northwich university wow there's really? a bruderbond museum that's dude, crazy if the eff finds out about this but it's <laughs> it is dude but it's in it is whack Mm. It's 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 borderline. It feels like a little bit of like a little Nazi museum, right? Where they just keep all these books. But it's fascinating. Yeah. It's incredible. So yeah. Portugal has got its own little rich history with Fentersdorp there. But I mean, ugh, being a South African, like you, you can never like politics will always be part of our DNA. It's just oh, the yeah. way it is. Like no other country, like the standard American doesn't grow up with like the politics being engraved in their uh, or ingrained in their DNA. Where with South Africa, it's like you don't have a choice. Yeah. I Funnily enough, whenever I speak to radio presenters to do the same format of radio as me overseas, so like like the format of radio I do is uh, generally commercial light entertainment is broadly how it's described. And it, 5FM is different from the other ones in South Africa in terms of the kind of content that we do is very unique for a bunch of reasons that are not interesting unless you're in radio. But basically the two radio stations that I resonate with the most in terms of my work and my show is Triple J in Australia and BBC Radio 1 in England. And I've, and I've been lucky enough to meet all of the presenters who are the big guys on those nice. stations, big guys and girls. And like they always turn to me and they're like, what do you mean you talk about politics? We would never Hooray. talk about impossible firstly people would tune out secondly why would we do that and i just say to them because uh in your country it's possible not to talk about politics mm. in our country if we didn't talk about politics we would lose listeners because then we're not reflecting your real life we're not reflecting your daily life like at all like the the fundamental way to be a good radio presenter is to create a resonant experience with a listenership it feels like you're in the car with them, friends with them, in the same workplace as them. And so, of course, you have to talk about politics. And funnily enough, one of the reasons why I was hired at Five is because I do talk about politics. Because Five went through an era of trying not to. Right. And it wasn't... Yeah, they were kind of like funky, the funky, trendy radio station at yeah. some point. And we definitely still are like we like like we win all of these youth awards which is basically just like popularity contests but it's properly it's proper research to say that for young people five of them is the station of choice across the country which is great but i think that you talk about was my generation born work absolutely not so i'm 29 turning 30 and i was at uct and i actually made my name as a broadcaster during roads must fall and i can tell you that in six months there it's easy to look back at Rosemont's Fall and think, ah, oh, the whole of UCT must have already been woken down with the no, politics. It wasn't. Absolutely not. No. Like, UCT went through a conscientization moment for six months that was brutal and extraordinary. And the vast majority of students came out knowing things and believing things that they didn't six months before. In yeah. fact, two or three of the Rhodes Must Fall chieftains, like the main people yeah, who ran Rhodes yeah. Must Fall, were philosophy students who came on my talk radio show a month before Rhodes Must Fall started. So Rhodes Must Fall hadn't started, Omani Makhlele hadn't thrown the shit on the statue. And they came on my show and we were just chatting about the state of South African politics. They were trying to start like a philosophy forum or whatever. And for some reason or another, the topic of Nelson Mandela came up and I looked at them and I said, so do you think Nelson Mandela sold out the revolution? 
And I will never forget both of them looking at me like stunned, like it had never crossed their minds. And four months later, Rhodes Must Fall <laughs> said <laughs> that Nelson Mandela had sold out so you started the revolution. No, <laughs> I'm kidding, I'm, I'm kidding, I'm kidding. <laughs> no, I didn't tell them to believe that. I just said, have you thought about it? But like, but that was how quickly it was happening. Even people who ended up being leaders were changing and evolving mm. immediately. Yeah, dude, but that, that's, that's the whole thing about learning and unlearning. That's where the, my whole journey started like five years ago because someone just asked me, a guy that lives in America as an Afrikaans podcast, and he invited mm -hmm. me on and he asked me, he asked me the simple question, do I see myself as an Afrikaner? Okay. And I kid you not, for the, for the, I think I was like, two, I was 35 then. I've never sat down and thought, do I identify, like do I see, I know I'm Afrikaans yes. and I know I'm white, but yes. am I... Oh, Afrikaner. Exactly. And it, it just bowled me over. I'm like, oh my word, I probably need to either like commit and say, yes, I'm Afrikaner and decide we, like how, like what kind of Afrikaner. Yeah, what does it mean? Yeah. yeah. And it was fascinating and it's been like one of the funnest journeys so far for me, but like everyone has got like identity that like somehow kind of have to like figure out for themselves or I don't know, maybe some people just feel like, Ugh, I don't care about, I mean like Quentin the Cook is a great example. Like remember like way back with like the whole knee thing. Yeah, just he like, was I'm like, not interested. I don't care about politics. I want to fish and hit sixes and like <laughs> why do I need to and like I mean it's it's fair it's fair sure. argument I guess like can I ask you about because you also made a video about like the Bonambi yes. the racing like what's your stance on like do you think because like a, lo a lot of my friends says like like a white guy like Kari like that's like all the privilege in the world like mm. like the, the, the term like be, someone being racist towards you like is that a fair thing like can someone like that experience racism or is the term so heavy weighted like you have to like feel under druk and like yeah. disadvantage for your whole yeah. life that um, that you can actually say like I was yeah. treated uh, racist. Yeah, so it's so funny. It's just so funny. I was in the meeting of like white kids during Rosewood Ford UCT where we had this exact debate. And then we went out because basically at Rhodes, during Rosemont's Fall, we realized after two months that like uh, black students were getting exhausted by the fact that they keep having to explain to a new white person the basics. The white person didn't know. And they were getting run out of energy by this basic thing. Mm. And it, we basically, I mean, the conclusion for Rosemont's Fall was white people must figure it out for themselves. Yeah. And if, if you want to be a good white ally, you should go and do some, some teaching yourself. And so we tried to answer this exact question and actually an extremely pro he's now an extremely prominent progressive economist, but I won't give out his name. I don't think he'd care, but just, just for politeness, for safety. But we were having this exact debate because on the literal level, the very literal level, being ra uh, a racist act is a bigoted act that is about the race of a person who is the victim, right? And has a negative consequence, 100%. But what, what this guy was saying, which I think has become compelling for a lot of people around the world is, but racism in the way that it has actually played out in the vast majority of instances is a system of, a, a, a system of oppression that destroys your life and runs your life and happens all the time. And when a person of color experiences an act of racism, it's far more dangerous and loaded and consequential and harmful to them than if a white person does um my my sport reader the other day asked me like name a racial slur against white people that you find very upsetting to you and i said oh, i can't think of one and she says surely you must and i said no like you know with white cunt or <laughs> you know yeah. uh with, with with white cunt he put the word white on the front but the word cunt in england doesn't mean a person who's shitty because they are white yeah and so for they me they use that term all the time. Yeah, they do. And often in it's a like good a, way. Exactly. It's, like it's not that deep. No. <laughs> yeah. And so and so for me, I personally believe two things. The first is that 
some racial slurs have got a way bigger carry weight than others. And I think that in the vast majority of cases, a racial slur against a white person is not easily compared to a racial slur against a black person. I agree. And then the second thing I want to say about that is if you choose to call the one a racial slur and the one racism, that's up to you. But I think if we're fighting about whether or not it is racist or not, you're actually missing the point because you're not actually thinking about the severity of the act that was committed. Yeah. It just the whole thing feels so whack just because it happened a year ago. That's the latest most. Did you follow oh, that? Just before now, they said he was he was uh, innocent on both charges last Saturday and a year ago. Oh, you and it's just like me? what a fucking waste of time. Yeah. I'm sorry. I swear so badly when <laughs> Dude, I'm not on live radio. Yeah. When I'm not on live radio, I'm filthy, guys. I'm so sorry. I don't I'm, know how you do that. You got like a, 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 a swear button on the show. <laughs> yeah. So so where did your like the passion or the, like the dream to go into radio, was that one of the things you wanted to do or was it just like by, by accident? Bro, I have such a, I have such a lame story. <laughs> wrong, I was, you, did you pitch up at the wrong audition or no, wrong meeting? I was, I was so bored at university. I was just so bored. Like, and there was nothing wrong with university. I just think there was nothing I was interested in. Because you knew everything because of your parents. No, <laughs> I knew very little. I was just so deeply bored and distracted. I was an extremely- Other campus is wildly boring. No, I know. It's horrible. And I mean, I was an extremely bad student. I would never go to class. And it was third year. And I was like, yo, I've actually got to get a degree in something. And we had a plaza day. You know the plaza day where mm. you try to get people to sign up to clubs and mm. societies. I was trying to- because a huge part of my story is competitive university debating. That's where all my broadcasting ah, ability nice. comes from. So I was trying to get people to sign up to the debating union. And um, honest to God, uh, was drinking vodka to get through the day because it was so boring going up to first years and begging them to sign up for your oh, arguments club. <laughs> and like uh, somebody came up to me and we were chatting or whatever. And she said, I'll sign up for your club if you sign up for mine. And I didn't even really know what I was signing, guys. And then the next day, there was a thousand rand missing from my student account because UCT Radio sign up fee was a thousand <laughs> rand. Sign up fee. For, yeah, it, it was what? to run it. They tries to like run the radio course. station off of signups. So I was like, fuck, I have to go to this because I can't get my money back. And I didn't even listen to radio. And then I arrived and it was just really exciting. And then a week later, I was made, um, for the reasons that you guys have described, just because I've got a lot of knowledge in my brain, I was made content producer for The Breakfast Show. So I didn't do the graveyard, awful hours, slum thing. And then when you're on The Breakfast Show, you feel krach, you know? And then um, it was way more fun, way more fun than lectures. Yeah. And so I just did that. That's how radio started for me. So how long have you been with, with Five now? Or what was your journey? Your first big one was UCT and then So I used to radio for a year and three months or so from third year. So I started at UCT radio when I was 20. And then um, Good Hope FM hired me at 21 to do weekend breakfast. And then I did Yes, weekend. that's young, dude. That's incredible. Mate, I was so bad. I was so unprepared. <laughs> I cannot even begin to tell you how bad I was. I couldn't. I, I was so bad. Uh, anyway, survived, then uh, did quite well, got a brunch show co-host thing, and then, and then a lunch show, and then a breakfast show, and then COVID happened, and I thought, yeah, I'm out now, and I was going to go study my dream course of study in New York City at, a, at the new school. They've got a media, they got a media master's program, which was built for me, because I was just running a podcasting company, and they were interested in new media, and then Five called me, and in my world, a, a call from Five is like a call from the Springboks. Yeah. You throw out your whole life, that is what you're now doing. You don't even have to think about it. Yeah. And so I moved to Five during COVID, and it's been just over two and a half years. Yeah. Yes, that was my dream growing up. I had two dreams. I wanted to become the next Wayne Ferreira. I was yes, like obsessed yes. with tennis. <clears throat> then a McDonald's opened up in Pochostrum, so that just <laughs> ruined my everything. 
And then, and then my other dream, dude, because I grew up with like bon- Bonnie Simon in the evenings. Like I would tape a show in the evening, go to school, the next day after school, just Listen press play. Yeah. So <clears throat> 5 of them was like my biggest, biggest dream. Game. And then uh, luckily for me, like the, the band started and my whole life took another course. Stratlichenis is great, by the way. Oh, thanks, dude. Appreciate I'm glad it. you guys are doing it again. Yeah, but it's such a, I mean, the whole concept of like, of like being able to share your views with on a on a plat- podcast platform. I don't know, obviously, how it feels to be on radio, but this, like, the responsibility is like, how much respo- responsibility do you feel as like one of the biggest radios in the country to like from what you bring to the table and how controversial can you get? Like, obviously, you work for a, for the SABC, so it's this massive company. So, are they like a, a, a gatekeeper? What do you mean? It? You yes, but like, of kind course. of like, hey, listen, you can't say that. Like, yeah, um, that's a great question. How, like, how, how much, how many times do you have to compromise with like what you want to do um, and what you can say? It's a super great question. It's a very complicated question, <laughs> and unsurprisingly, I'm gonna have to leave out some specifics. Yeah, uh, but <laughs> Go for um, it. so firstly, on the responsibility, it's just something you learn how to do. I've done nearly 10,000 hours of live radio and and in any one of those moments if you say the wrong thing not only your like your work your career your your, your good name my mother doesn't listen to my shows and it's cuz she's a deeply socially anxious person but she's just so scared that I'll say something dumb that really? is not of my character and then wow. and then it'll be over and uh, I guess that could happen quite easily right so easily <laughs> I could leave a mic on and not realize. Yeah, yeah. Like it, the like, pitfalls, crazy. Totally. And I mean, so I'm, I'm one of those people who believes that scripted radio is fine, but great radio is never scripted. And so there are some radio, uh, some radio stations where, like, the producer in the morning will give you a Microsoft Word document down to the number of ha's in your ha ha ha's on a on a pre written joke. I'll tell you which station it is. All fair. Uh, <laughs> but I'm one of those people who's like. I try to build the kind of live improv energy. So I'm like, cool guys, we're gonna talk about this. This is the start. This might be my end, but I fully trust every single one of you on my team to take it in whatever direction you like because I trust you as funny people who are great entertainers and I'm willing to put my trust in that. And sometimes that goes wrong, but it is, I've just learned over years and years and years to quell the anxiety. And I also do take one sleeping pill and one antidepressant, which are both anti-anxieties. Nice. Uh, I just have to. Um, and I think everybody should do therapy and everybody should get the meds they need because human beings are chemical equations ultimately in our brains. And if you can get the right chemicals, you should. Yeah. So, but no, but for years, the anxiety, her horrifying, my first show on Five, my first show on Good Up, I always remember them because I was terrified and really i was just talking but i was it's live and in many ways i think to myself why do we still do live it's such an unnecessary (laughs) risk like why do we do this at all but there is definitely something that happens when you are doing live that pushes you to a higher plane of performance Mm. and stage actors will tell you the same thing Mm. stand-up comedians will tell you the same thing like when you're tight rope it's like walking on a tight rope it's that's it and somehow you you perform better because there are consequences Hundred yeah. uh, percent. It's it's really it's hard to describe, and people think that I'm crazy and very risk prone. Um, but then coming down to like the controversial stuff, so that's interesting. So I'm one of the very few presenters in the country who openly talks about politics, gives my opinion, agenda sets, at least. Actually, including talk radio, because on talk radio, you need a degree of like, oh, I'm going to show both sides, even if one of the sides yeah, is deeply yeah. offensive and racist and unacceptable. Um, and I'm very lucky because my management team hired me for that reason. So I am able to really be myself on Five. And Five is one of the very few radio stations in the country which allows you to do that. And it just so happens that Five right now um, and in the last two and a half years with me has said, Dan, we back you. Um, nice. And there have been some extraordinary moments. Like I, I condemned Gareth Cliff on Five of M's Breakfast Show. Like think about that conceptually. 
I had to go on air when he did that dumb shit with Stenhazen and that poor woman in that interview well, that went yeah. viral. I had to come out and be like, Gareth Cliff doesn't represent the show or the station and I'm cutting the umbilical cord of his relevance to Five. Like, And I wouldn't be here in this seat if Five still had anything to do with that. And the fact that management allowed me to do that is really cool. And then there's this notion that the SABC is basically still Claudi Mozzaneng's SABC and like it's basically Stalin era Soviet Union stuff. And I can't speak for other radio stations, but I don't think it's like that at all, actually. I think the SABC is very good at allowing all kinds of discourse and discussion. Because if you really think about how much we all as South Africans bash the government and bash terrible things that happen in this country, if the SABC was censoring us, you would notice. Yeah. And no one has noticed. Like, yeah. like on Five, but also other stations, we talk about what it's like to be South African in real daily life, and I'm very appreciative of that. Obviously, there are certain things that we just cannot talk about because it would be insane. Mm. But I don't believe that any of those things are doing a disservice to the country. No. Yeah. How, do you, how do you feel about it in a personal capacity, though? So, for example... I mean, you have the SABC's guidelines and whatever, but if you talk about something on TikTok or on your podcast or whatever, I don't know. For me, I can't even imagine engaging with negative stuff online. I know Boat has some experience on this, but... I love it. Do you, do, you feel like, do you feel like it's your knowledge that kind of backs you? Is that kind of what you fall back on when you get some kind of hatred or negative stuff coming back at you? Because surely you do, right? Oh, uh, yeah. I got my first death threat in 2015. Really? Yeah. But that was because I directed Leicester. Do you remember that documentary? Oh, snap. About Stellenbosch University. The brother language. I didn't yeah, yeah. So I so I directed that um, film. Um, so it's a couple of things. And I talked to my girlfriend about it a lot um, because actually very few people go through targeted hatred often. Sure. Um, uh, so you're the number of times I've been called a white traitor, hey? A, tra a traitor to my race. Yeah, people of Earth, well, there are no teams. <laughs> There's not this cunt and that cunt. Can we just pick, you know? Like, we don't need to do that. Um, so it's a couple of things. The first one is um, knowledge. You're absolutely right. So like, I'm not going to say anything unless I've checked. Sure. And I don't know if you guys have noticed, if you've watched even a few of my um, TikToks or YouTube videos or podcasts, is I always say very clearly, I make it clear to the listenership that I'm a subjective person. And this is what I've read and I'm open to being wrong. So like often you'll hear on the podcast, I'll say, I think it's, or if I'm not wrong, it's, and that's because you have to choose a level of humility that you might be wrong. And also that other people who disagree with you, it's often because they've seen the shit that they thought was right. And as much as you can be like, ah, oh, I wish you were just a better fact checker or using it on the internet, often it doesn't come from an insincere place or a trolling place. So that's the first one is like, I want to back myself with knowledge. And if anybody ever in the comments says, ah, but that's wrong, I say, cool, show me the evidence. And very rarely do they ever show me the evidence because very rarely is there evidence against. It. And that's not to say that I'm the supreme researcher. It's just like I've checked, mm -hmm. you know, and often people haven't. But then when it's open hatred and hate mail, it is very hard. It is very hard. Uh, and like even now with this, um, I did a video about how the Springboks was the representation of yeah. Afrikaner nationalism yeah, yeah. and how incredible it is that it's been changed. And these white people were sending me messages, vile messages about being a black loving George Soros funded this, 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 this. Yeah. And, and it's just like, it is really disheartening, but it's just something that, and this is a hardcore thing to say, but like brutally from experience, I've learned how to just stomach. Because when we made Laced, like one of my co-creators, like his parents' like store in Stellenbosch got roughed up. 
like we got death threats. I had to report people. For a while we thought somebody was photographing my parents' house. Someone called UCT Radio wanting to talk to me. Uh, this weird, do you guys know what Prag is? Yeah, 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 dude. Prag. Yeah, what's his name? Dan Ruud. Prag wrote an article about me where they essentially said I was a black loving George Soros fan. You could see all the bigotry come out immediately. It was like, George Soros funded, okay, cool. Anti-Semitism, black loving, cool, racist. Uh, communist gay on the hill, cool, UCT, homophobic. It was just like, bah, 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 bah. And then the comments were like, uh, when, when, when that day comes, you'll be the first one we yeah. deal with. And the unfortunate reality of doing what I do in South Africa is that that is just gonna happen. But the thing that you have to remember is that it's not a, hatred online feels enormous because you can't believe somebody said something so terrible but to that's you. That's the thing. But it feels it, disheartening. It's not a reality it's, for me. But it's not a critical mass of hatred, right? So it's easy to blow up one comment because it's so vile and that's how a troll works. But if then you really think, how many people actually feel this yeah, about me? exactly. Then you can kind of contextualize it a bit. So I've been getting a lot of hatred on a, on a video I did about... Um, white economic empowerment, right? But I can see how many people liked it. And you can also see the kinds of people. There's a guy on there's a guy on TikTok who on every video I post says, Dan, stop being a puss. Doesn't matter what the video is about. And I kind of think that's hilarious. That's kind of funny though. That's funny. But it's just like, it's very hard to do, but you just got to force yourself to get perspective. Yeah. For and, me, then, yeah. and then the very last thing is you've got to go, actually, I'm right about this. And I prefer a world in which what I said was the thing and not what they said. Yeah. Do you, your TikTok videos, do you post them on Facebook as well? No, fuck that platform. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that is the best. That is exactly what I wanted to say right now. So be before the before the France game, I made this yeah. I made this like satire video of a pastor that can't I like, love that video. So dude, I posted that on TikTok, Instagram and Facebook. Instagram and TikTok, not one negative comment. Facebook you would I kid you I kid you <laughs> No I, but dude, vile, I kid Dan, you like not horrible Four, stuff. Four hundred comments and Probably 395 was like, you're going to burn in hell. That's God's last look. And it's just like, it was just, why is this platform? And then but also all the, the, the contradiction of like, I'm a Christian and I want to stand up for my religion yeah, and for my belief system. But then I'm just going to tell you that you need to be blacksomed. Like, yeah, it's yeah. just, it's, it's like so crazy. But, but that, yeah, but that platform, I think, like that's, I think I'm over that. Yeah. posting any content on that but there are different audiences per platform you're yeah. absolutely right and they behave in a different way but dude your videos what I, what, what I, what I find so it's incredible that like the, those history stuff like whatever you do they get like a hundred thousand plus views yeah. that's whack if you, if you take like any other like big say if there was like a TV show that's like a, a historical TV show I don't know if a hundred thousand people will watch it but that's just the power of these platforms these days you can educate someone in like a quick one minute and the, the yeah. influence is, is massive dude you know you're right and I think that like TikTok is a funny thing because it's the latest and maybe the last great social media platform like we had community in Facebook then we had words only then we had pictures only and now we have video specialist right and i don't know if very soon there will be another platform yeah. because there isn't another media to to emulate online mm. digitally and i didn't know that tiktok would be the thing that would get me the most understood or that i'd be best at performing on yeah but i think but there's context i mean with the radio show obviously the, it's time limiting that you only have five minutes with this case there's a two minute segment then there's an ad so you can never really deep that like dive deep with a with tiktok videos and podcasts is it's very um, vulnerable. It's very honest because you can give context. Like I always say, like someone like Steve Ofmer, if you, if you like it or not, he tries to like talk about apartheid in a tweet. 
and then or, or like whatever he wants to say he, he unpacks it in a tweet and it's like dude it's such a heavy topic like start a podcast where you can absolutely. explain you can give more context absolutely and, uh, and that's why I love this platform so much it's super super powerful and I wanted to ask you about yours like how did you get like Moosey and Herman, Herman. <laughs> did you just did you just literally like reach out and did you play like the 5M card how does it no, work did they, they approached me yeah. uh, for the party pardon like for the party like to yeah they approached me that's insane dude well done ah <sighs> Look, like with TikTok and with the podcast and with the video um, stuff, I think I think two things. The first one is that in competitive debating when I was at UCT, it was all I really did. So I, I, I really genuinely wasn't studying because I was doing debating and I was very fortunate to be able to go around the world to different tournaments. And in debating, you have, you're given the topic 15 minutes before the debate starts and you're given your side so you have 15 minutes, you read the topic, then you think, how would I have to argue from this position? It doesn't matter what your position is, right? And then your speech alone is only seven minutes. So you've got to go so fast. And what that taught me how to do was build arguments very efficiently. So if you are able, and TikTok is a great example of this, if you're able to get to the root of the argument and cut out all the fluff mm. and say these other things don't matter, because most human beings, Sharon, I'm not saying they're not good at arguing, but like there's a science to how you argue a point. And most human beings are incredibly messy. So I was taught how to do that. And then the second thing is nine and a half years of live radio, which is very time constrained. The second skill is you've got to get to the core of the story. So you've got to be able to tell the root excellence of a story and nothing else. And that doesn't just mean you've got to read the facts from Wikipedia. You know, I'm about to do a video about the greatest love story in the history of South Africa, which is Jacques Ninaba and Rassi Erasmus, right? Nice. And, and a little bit of what, what I love about TikTok is you are able to Part of the story is the emotion sometimes. It's not just the facts. So I'm going to frame it like with a Celine Dion track from Titanic and stuff because we're making this a love story, but we're actually trying to make a point about the emotion of the story. And radio and debating taught me how to tell the story in the most, the most efficient, impactful way and how to do an argument in the most efficient, impactful way. And that's, I think, why my, my storytelling abilities work. And then when it comes down to how I got Musi and Herman, and we're about to do a couple of others, not, not Julius yet, I'm really trying. Um, but uh, <laughs> Love to see it. I, I would love to survive it. Uh, <laughs> but uh, with, with those guys, I think it's because I'm just doing such big numbers talking about politics. Mm -hmm. I think it's very straightforward. They see young people watching my shit and not retweeting their tweets or commenting on Instagrams, and they're just like, we just want Dan yeah. to give us airtime, even if he asks tough questions. It makes sense. It's like um, between two ferns with Zach Galifianakis. Love they, that. When, when show yeah, so much but it was when they had Hillary on and Obama Barack. it was because that like Barack, Barack was like pushing his whole medical plan back he in the was, day yes. so it, it's it's they they contact them to go listen this is yeah. a popular show um, and I think that that's what makes your shows freaking insane is like you've got that that clout and, and that you're not pool. afraid of confrontation at all <laughs> yeah that's awesome at but all. I mean but that's the when they when they ask you I mean the, then you have the upper hand like okay cool you can come on the show but I'm going to ask you these five things it's going to be tough so don't oh no I don't do that in fact, no, 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 no you don't next give them the answers. Uh, but I mean, what I'm saying is, yeah. you can be like, okay, so you contacted me. So I want to talk about sure. xenophobia, ABCD, and then you must sure. back it. So uh, I'm about to have another politician on and they wanted to have a pre-interview. And I was just like, there's no need to have a pre-interview, guys. These are <laughs> these are the things, right? Nice. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to grill your, your, your politician, but, and I always frame it like this, and I think a journalist wrote an article about it, is like, friendly attempt to genuinely understand. So I'm not here to push Herman Mashaba's frankly slavery-esque fucking policy for prisons, 
but um, I am going to genuinely try to understand you. And then the secret in the back of my head, which I think should be evident to everybody is, I'm not going to dig your hole for you, but I'm going to let you dig it. <laughs> you know what I mean? Mm. So I'm not fighting for you or against yeah. you. I am helping you make the whole world know exactly what you think. Yeah. And that doesn't mean that I'm no longer a human with opinions. Like I did say to Herman, that sounds like slavery because I was like, that sounds like slavery. Uh, but that's, but like, if I'm not going for a confrontation, well, I am, but like in a very gentle way. Yeah. I'm not looking for a viral moment where somebody screams at me. Sure. Yeah. I'm looking to genuinely find out what's going on. And But the thing is like, with politicians, they 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 put their hand up to be public servants. So so you as Joe Public, like there's a responsibility to to have all these people accountable and to go. This is what I've read. Like, why does your party look like this or A, B, and C? Um, are you allowed to say when is your when is that episode coming on? Oh, uh, are you still shooting it? Yeah, <coughs> maybe don't, don't say, maybe say, maybe a month, maybe a month. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so, <laughs> so where do you, where do you shoot that stuff at your house? Uh, so from my podcasting company days, we developed a model where, where you don't need a studio because I just realized yeah. the biggest cost is housing a thing. Yeah. Mm. And so I've got the best sound engineer in the world. His name is Eric. He can take a single read out of your voice through a mathematical, mathematical equation that he's written. Uh, so Eric, in combination with very good hardware, means that we can record anywhere. Okay. And so... Uh, we recorded Musi Maimane in an artist studio, an artist called John O'Dry in Cape Town. He's oh, a big artist. Okay, okay. We recorded Herman Mashaba in the head of his investment corporation. Uh, oh, so you'd kind of travel around wherever the case. But where I, do the, where I do my show is in our spare bedroom, which is now my girlfriend's wardrobe, basically. <laughs> horror messy room. But that's like Mark Maron. And it's like his yes. garage. garage. And, then, and then you hear about like Barack Obama rocking up at Mark Maron's house. How <laughs> whack is that, dude? That's if I incredible. ever get whatever, I'll try to get him to come to my house. That'll be cool. <laughs> That'll be incredible, dude. So it's good, it's good sequences. That's your company. Is that still Correct. a thing? Eh? Yeah. Correct. But good sequences is purely for clients. So oh, okay. so that's, that was just like my attempt to do a pure capitalistic approach to podcasting. If you want a podcast, like you cook, for example, we'll make it for you. And we've done like nine or 10 of those. Yeah. Uh, so I come to you and go, listen, like CS to C has got like that sports show almost. They actually recorded across the room so it's like oh cool we come to you you produce the whole thing i mm. just sit with my we show concepted for you we uh, nice. do all, we bring all the tech all the software you don't do anything except what you want to say or interview oh, basically wow. do you think there's going to be do you feel that there's a boom at the moment in podcasts and you Absolutely. think it's going to get bigger right yeah so the thing that i always say about south africa is that i in my middle class life have no idea how big a deal our data costs are to everyday yeah, south yeah, africans yeah, yeah. but i can abstractly understand and for as long as our data costs are as expensive as, as, as they are to use a cell phone a podcast in terms of a data download is just so cheap mm -hmm. compared to video that podcasting is kind of like built for south africa the yeah. only thing cheaper than that is radio because it's free yeah. like and and the more that i think there'll be a huge breakthrough when a closer zulu or sutu person makes a podcast as good as like serial yeah. Was from a serial uh, all those yes. years ago. Oh, yes, yes, yes. I think I crime, think the crime one. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. I think I think in a South African dominant or origin African language will be the turning point for like mass media consumption. But uh, I don't know. If, I don't know if true. I mean, true crime. Yeah, true crime in South Africa feels. But there is one. There is a true crime South me. Africa. Podcast. There is a true crime South Africa, but it feels. I would, for me personally, I would rather listen to like 
a man being eaten by a crocodile in Florida <laughs> than listen to yeah, yeah. like true crime South yeah. Africa. Maybe it's too close to I don't know. know. But I mean, I there's some know. big boys. I mean, the 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 the, the Penwell. How do you say Penwell? Penwell. The, the Penwell show. Yeah, yeah. And the KG, what's the other massive podcast? The KG. Mac G. Mac G, Mac G. Yeah, Podcast and Chill. Podcast He's, and Chill yeah, 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 is sorry, ludicrous. Sorry. How do you feel about Joe Rogan, Dan? Sorry, I just have to ask. Yeah, go for it. I hate Joe Rogan. <laughs> I think he's an objectively <laughs> terrible person. He's a bad interviewer. He's got no redeemable qualities. Okay. I don't... I really don't know what else to say. I, I, I think he has no... What do you think makes him a bad interviewer? I also don't like him, but what do you think he makes him a bad... He doesn't ask good questions. Okay. Sorry, I say no, this as somebody who interviews people all the time. I have extreme... I have, I have opinions about the way the two of you have handled me. Uh, no, I'm joking. <laughs> <laughs> Bring it no. on. <laughs> but like, I just... Um, I don't think he's good at interviewing people. I think that he's a, a bad attempt at being a shock jock. I think that he pursues a headline in order to get money. I think that like he's a corrosive... A corrosive influence. And he just pushes yeah. supplements, right? That's yeah, essentially it, what it's about. In the same way as Alex Jones, but like, but like, Ugh. okay, so for me, like the best shock jock who has ever been, and the reason why we have had Gareth Cliff and others, and we now have Mac G, is Howard Stern. He invented it. He absolutely from wow. scratch invented it. He was known as the king of, uh, the god of all radio. And look, he did some terrible things that I fundamentally disagree with. Mm. Uh, but I can recommend. His old interviews are horrid, horrid. But I horrid. can respect the craft and the fact that he changed broadcasting, which is kind of an extraordinary thing to think about. I'm not saying it was good or bad, but like for you to do something so well, mm. so I can respect the craft. Joe Rogan is is someone doing that craft badly. Yeah. And he also peddles in conspiracy theories that don't pass the bar for we should entertain this. Because for me, there's a bar with anything you talk about, if you're gonna frame it as potentially true, that it needs a certain degree of evidence. And if you peddle shit as potentially true when you don't have a certain degree of evidence, you're making the world worse. That's my feeling. Just making it worse. Yeah. Cool. I'm gonna steal that the next time <laughs> someone wants to talk about yeah. Joe Rogan. <laughs> yeah, I know, yeah. I, I'm I happy to fight with people about Joe Rogan. I absolutely am. What I'm fascinated, just about, I don't listen to his show, but just the fact that he, there's like three hour conversations and then there's actually people, that, but that's what I love about the format, mm. is like people commit two hours of their life to sit through this conversation, and that's incredible. That's why that's what makes us. The, the well, there's no money yet in podcasting, so I don't know how many people will <laughs> start. Know, you have two show sponsors. Well, you should tell me how you well, did that. In, well, we we had it we had it for that month, but then you give the stats back, and then it's like it's just not worth it for the brands yeah. because it's well the the I think the being a devil's advocate with our show is like it's very Afrikaans because I started this like Afrikaans thing. I wanted to. So my, I've got like a big passion to educate Afrikaans people as well. Not that I'm like the all-knowing Afrikaans person, but... You know Penwell, the black pen, hey? Not he even thinks close. he's a prophet. No, 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 not <laughs> even close. But I like to I like to like always say like, I want to take the hands of the people on this side, the people on that side and kind of connect them. And I wanted to use Afrikaans because it's also weird for two Afrikaans people to speak English for an hour. We, yes. sa we sound stupid for ourselves. <laughs> and it's like, why am I listening to Bowen and Franz Van Gogh in English? They must... Oh, almost Afrikaans. So, so, the, the, so okay, anyway. So, what I wanted to say is like, there's not real big money yet, but I think there's gonna be a, a tipping point. Oh where, no, I think where, it's inevitable. Yeah. And I also think like, so I've I've also through my company been pitching podcasts to brands for years. And it's just really simple. Like brands, if you are listening, you should come sponsor my show. And also this one. If your stuff's uh, massive, it'll make total sense. You like, you rake in heavy hitters, dude. It'll make total sense. But like, what I always say to brands is, you have no idea how much bang you're getting for your buck for two reasons. The first one, and you guys should tell this to anybody who's trying to sponsor you. The first one is video costs so much and will be seen and, ex and absorbed so little. Like it just, so, it just costs so much. Like 
I can make you a great podcast series for a hundred thousand. You couldn't make a five second yeah. advert for a hundred thousand. Yeah, like, yeah. give me a break. You know what I'm yeah. saying? And then the second thing is, pure audio is still the most trusted medium for an audience member listening to advertising. And the, the theory is simple: you can't see the artifice, so you can't see the edges of the screen. You can't see that it's a show, a performance, right? And so you experience it as a friend in your car. There's a higher trust record than anything and so 500 podcast listeners are literally more valuable to you yeah. as a brand than 5,000 views yeah yeah they're engaging that's what i'm saying like because they they commit like you you barely watch two or three episodes from a netflix show and you're like Ugh, I can't. you take your phone out and you're distracted <laughs> where a podcast is like it's, it's a loyal listenership but uh, but i think that was the old it left central model in the beginning was like just to get less people because he was obviously on five which was massive and the podcast Obviously, it doesn't get that much listenership. Yeah, I hear you. But he's, I heard something that he said once, like, it's just the most engaging. That's where the, mm. the, the also the money's at. If you if you have 100 listeners, you need just 100 of them to, to, to pay 50 rand a month. And then Easy. you got like 5,000 rand. Is my math right? No, you're right. You're absolutely right. My math isn't good either, though. But that's a Netflix model. It's like just yeah, exactly. everyone. It's like, how do you make your 100 rand with 10, 10 rands or 250 rands? 100%. Do you guys not think it's too saturated? Saturated, though. I feel podcast, like everyone then? has a podcast. How many Afrikaans I also had a podcast, but... Not a lot. There's a lot, yeah. There's, there's a, well, everyone has, everyone has a podcast, but the only reason why is because it's so easy to record a podcast. Yeah. But like when people say it's too saturated, I say, do you know how many television shows there are in the world? Yeah. Sure. And they're not too sa saturated. Sure. What naturally happens when you have, or like how many, how many TikTokers are there in the world? How could I possibly make it on TikTok? The truth is that when there's a low barrier to entry, everyone will try to do it. And then like with any industry, a few people will rise to the top. Yeah. And then those will be the dominant podcasts. And everybody else will not make money. But yeah. that's unfortunately just true of all art <laughs> true, and media. Yeah. But I mean, South Africa feels like, in terms of content and podcasts and stuff, like we're like a gold mine because, first of all, because of politics. I think that's also the reason why brands doesn't want to get involved because, like, yeah, but you speak about racism too much, and we just want to sell, sell cars or whatever the brand is. So I think that's that's the downside. But that's always where that's also where all the the gold will come from. It's like that conversation with you. Like, I mean, where in the world the fact that. I think the DA is starting a podcast now. The EFF started a podcast. Mm. Why now? 2023. Yeah. Podcast, it, it shows you like they understand this is where it's at at the yeah. moment. But it, I mean, yeah, I don't know. I just don't think you need, I don't think that like podcasting is similar to radio where there's this feeling that we need to like prove, to, prove ourselves to an audience mm. when I actually just don't think it's true. I think podcasting has already won. I don't think it's going anywhere. I think oh. as soon as Joe Rogan Fuck Joe Rogan, but as soon as Joe Rogan <laughs> did that Spotify deal, it was over. It was done. Yes, dude, like that I was mean, two hundred more. Yeah, like, oh. and then also like call her daddy is incredible, and how to fail. Like these are massive, mm. and what 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 we as media innovators or people who are doing a new format need to do is figure out how to make it sustainable. So maybe the best way isn't to sell your podcast, but do you know what's really good is having an event out of a podcast for example is like saying hey don't you want to do this live my friend uh, my, my dear friend Yasin Barnes comedian from Cape Town yeah. and Simi Arif oh, yeah, no, no, no 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 and Simon Yasin and Simon did I think it was called the Rech Boys podcast it was about colored culture in oh, Cape Town nice. beautiful podcast beloved podcast and then the one day because the listeners loved it so much they did a live podcast recording in the Artscape Theater in front of 300 people nice. and it's just like that's beautiful you don't get yeah. that from a TV show. You don't get that from a radio show very often. So yeah. it's just about figuring what about out what to do with our audience. Yeah. yeah. And I think there'll always be there'll always be place for for your story, whatever you bring to the table. The the what what in Afrikaans we say what what's Katie Kuren van die Kaf is like the one that keeps on grafting. Like Beethoven, 
like there was other composers in Beethoven's time that was better than him but Beethoven just the the amount of output the, the sure. amount of songs he dropped Absolutely. it was inevitable that he would explode it's like the Absolutely. outliers Malcolm Gladwell thing so if you keep on hustling there'll be a tipping point if you, if you don't, like Joe Rogan if you like it or not there was a tipping point we hustled all the hard work and then Spotify was like let me buy your show Absolutely. which is absurd but that's that, that that's what uh, Sky but he is but he's like the Sky is not, not necessarily the talent but the, the grind mm. yeah it's um, the business of being a creative yeah. I was speaking about this with a friend of mine who's a who's, who's an ad exec yesterday and, I was just, and we were just talking about how like the great talent of so like I, I consider myself a performer first. I love performing. Like that is what I'm really good at. Put me on stage, put me on radio, put me on TV. I love doing the performance thing. But like it's it's still a creative art. And, and the fact of the matter is like in creative arts, the people who can do the business of being a creative artist actually win. They are the ones who win. Some of the greatest artists of our generation, let me be very boring and, and, and like very on the nose about this, but Vincent van Gogh was terrible at turning his art into a business. Mm. Yeah. Like other people, like Jean Jean Michel Basquiat was incredible at turning his art into a business because he went and did those pieces of art, not in like rural Pittsburgh. He did it in New York City in Brooklyn where he knew that that was going to win. Yeah. So it's like, yeah, it's, it's a business as shitty as it is. And I really do wish that the best artists always win, but they don't. Yeah. Often the best artists win because they're the best, but also because they're really good at the business. Mm -hmm. And sometimes some very average artists will outperform some very good artists because they're better at the business. Yeah. Yeah, when you're an artist, like you never get taught about the business side. It's always like, no, no, making money, you're selling out now, man. You're not doing <laughs> it. For I hate. Yeah, don't I you want to eat? <laughs> yeah, yeah, but it's 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 terrible. It's like, um, and yeah, the 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 ones that can crack it, that put that pride aside. It's like, listen, I can make good art and make good money at the same time. Because I always say, like, the arts, whatever it is, films, movies, music. Your soul needs art to survive, just like your body needs bread and milk. Absolutely. It's like you're, you're, you're made out of two things. It's not just your physical body. You need emotional. Um, that's why stories move us so much. Totally. Um, I want to ask you a, a, a hardcore question. Yes. I please. never get to speak to other white people about oh, English English white people yes. about like our history. So my, my question is, when I think of like our history, I always mm. think like apartheid, it was a white Afrikaans thing. We, my tribe, Afrikaans people started. So... Do you look at it like uh, all the white people did it? One question. And the other one is like, wh what, what do you feel like is your responsibility at the moment? Do you feel any with your platform to like kind of educate people one and also like um, just talk about it in general? Because when I talk about it, it's always like, oh, yeah, here we go again. Where I'm like trying to not make it that again. It's like, just talk about it. It's something that happened uh, 30 years ago. And then yeah. also like every Sunday, church is full of people that talk about something that happened 2,000 years ago. So... <laughs> 2,000 years ago is fine, but 30 years ago is is weird. Yeah, I'd love to hear a, pa a pastor talk about where God was from 1948 to 1994. Uh, <laughs> yo, I'm going to get in trouble now. Uh, no, so, dude, but there's a, there's a Ricky Gervais, yeah, Ricky Gervais and Jerry Seinfeld. I know that joke. It's yeah, the best joke the, ever written. The Jew, yeah, it's incredible. About how clearly you weren't there. Yeah, the, so it's like... I don't the, know that joke. Can I tell the joke? I yeah, know the exact uh, joke. I'm going to butcher it. Go for it. So uh, a Jew gets to heaven and... Uh, is talking with God and then uh, God says, I'll, I'll, uh, can you tell me a joke? And then, and then the Jew says, uh, the Holocaust, and God says, oh, I don't get it. And, and the Jew says, oh, it's one of those where you had to be there. 
Yeah, it's brutal. It's just... <laughs> it's so layered. An incredibly deep, wild... Is yeah. that a Ricky joke? No. It's, he or told a Jerry it, joke? As if he heard it somewhere. He heard it somewhere. Uh, okay. Yeah. They were like okay. talking... It's like the uh, comedy... What comedians uh, in cars comedians drinking coffee? Comedians in cars getting coffee. coffee. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, I was born and raised, and the history books confirm that uh, English, ancestral English South Africans uh, are just as complicit in racist, colonial, evil oppression and exploitation of black people as anybody else. Before the 1820 settlers, but the 1820 settlers also, there are vast areas of this country where there are very few Afrikaans people, and I can promise you it was just the same. Um, I have spent a lot of time on the Anglo-Boer War, uh, and British people did horrifying things to Afrikaners, but also people of color in that time. Uh, what the British did, um, particularly in KwaZulu-Natal against the Zulu people was absolutely horrifying. And people talk about it as deep history. There was a there was a mass murder in like 1908. Like it's like less than, a, it's like less than 120 years ago. I can't remember which uprising it was, but it was outside KZN, uh, sorry, outside Durban and KZN. And like hundreds of Zulu people were trapped in a, in a valley and slaughtered by British gunmen. So like, so for me, English-speaking South Africans love to be like, oh, you know, those Buddha, they're the ones. They're really bad. They did apartheid. <laughs> and every time they do that, I get so angry because you are dodging verantwoordelijkheid, which is my favorite Afrikaans word, by the way. Uh, you you nailed it. love that word. <laughs> um, you're dodging it. You are absolving yourself. And you're also doing this coded thing where you say, ah, oh, but we're white, but we're not like those whites. You know, yeah, yeah. can I can I just on that point yeah, when, when I got to UCT and it was fees must fall and roads must fall, I this is going to sound so strange, but it felt um, better for me to be an English speaking person totally. than an Afrikaans speaking totally. person, and I kind of hid behind that for quite a while, which is you no, know, I mean, you're absolutely right. So like, so like, a lot of the history that I talk about. And a lot of history that I was raised on um, by my parents uh, was like the true brutality of what the British did. Because it's really important to understand what Rhodes did and what Jamison did. Mm. Like it is horrifying. First ever concentration camp was Brits on Afrikaners and many other people of color in what is now the Free State. Like mm. that is just the truth, right? And then when the Brits won the second South African war, which I do prefer calling it just because it's an acknowledgement of how many people of color were involved and affected by it. And I call it the, well, many academics now call it the South African war because it was the war that meant that South Africa was created. So this war happens and then instantly out of the war, the British pay enormous reparations to Afrikaans people and then try to say, oh no, but you're, you're white now because we're gonna rule together. They create the first ever South African rugby team that then goes to England and plays this exhibition match, combination of Afrikaners and Brits. It's a project. It's a project of white supremacy. That is what they do. Then 1913 comes along. The first South African um, state is formed, the Union of South Africa. And then for decades, the largely British Nationalist Party, because there was one Labour NPR government in the 1920s, one. But the largely British Nationalist Party does horrifying things to um, to black people and like institutionalizes um, basic uh, apartheid. Uh, 
Mm. And then the NPR comes along and they do a bunch of radical shit. But it's so convenient for a few reasons for English-speaking South Africans to just not learn anything before 1948. It gets us off the hook. It makes us feel like we're special. It makes us dodge that thing of like, oh, yeah, like, oh, we didn't really benefit from apartheid. No, you absolutely fucking did. And like in the late 1940s, the apartheid government immediately did an extraordinary social welfare system to lift poor white South Africans out of poverty and prioritize them for jobs. Now, many of those were Afrikaans, people who were helped. But that's because the British had driven them into poverty oh, wow. like 50 years before that. Like, like the, the, the scar of the British Empire and my forefathers on this country is just as consequential. Yeah. And so... I think that we as English-speaking South Africans have to have a serious reckoning about the delusion that we perpetuate. Um, and we need to honestly say to ourselves that it's time, well, it's always been, it's never not been time, but like we need to stop being so like, like militantly cruel and deceptive about Afrikaans South Africans. And we need to stop acting like Afrikaans South Africans are lesser to us. Because there's a, a dynamic that British people love about Afrikaners being stupid and being basic and being rural and being like barbaric in a way that is like really horrifying. And I think it's a large reason why, I mean, even just with this fucking Tong Kari Bongi Manambi situation, yeah. I have um, Afrikaans friends who are so much more angry about it than me and it's because it's these fucking English again. They're not even English <laughs> yeah, South yeah. Africans, but these fucking palms. Like, Jesus. Like, That's they're doing funny. it. You, you know what I yeah, mean? Yeah. And so, when it comes down to responsibility, and do I feel like I have a duty, um, I feel like, in a very basic way, you should behave in the world in a way that makes the world a place that you want to live in. And it's in, in a very basic way, English South Africans should do more for Afrikaans people and people of color to not just be so cuck. Yeah. Yeah. I read a that's a good answer, dude. I, I read there was a really massive thick book by yeah. Helena Lewis Mann Opperman. Uh-huh. Helena Lewis Opperman and the book is called Apartheid Britain's Bastard Child. And the whole concept is like uh the English uh so they they kind of apartheid the Afrikaner. And then because of the so there's a quote that says pain that is not transformed is transmitted. I see. And then because of the Buddha there wasn't a language of like a silkender. We couldn't okay. talk about it. Didn't know. So instead of like dealing with that trauma of like being um, oppressed, mm. they in, they did exactly that to black people. Yeah. So it's a fascinating book on like the power of like trauma yeah. and how we're uh, um, like, uh, when you what's what Arflik? generational um, Inher- like when inherited. you you inherited from the previous totally. generation. Okay. And it was fascinating for me for the first time. And that book actually, Eliana did a tour with the book and she. She did that talk at Afri Forum and Solidarität as well, and with they they wrote a letter that they sent to like Prince, uh, one of the princes, Charles Harry, probably Charles at the time, yeah. and it was like, listen, we would like an apology 100%. because just 100%. for what you got, even though it's like a hundred years ago, just for like, just the act of like what you came in, in yeah, the barbarism, did, absolutely, yeah, dude. it's fascinating. But there's a but so that was one thing. The other thing is there's a there's a fascinating book called. Um, with terroriste. Oh yeah. And fascinating. I didn't know that. Like Steve Hofmeyer's grandfather was one of the terrorists that was like act, doing acts of terrorism against the English government back in the day. We they blew up um, uh, movie theaters. They blew yes. up post, uh, postal services because of they felt oppressed. They were like so. No one. No one. I think. I don't think anyone died during that day. But they did mm. like sabotaging. Of course. And then when that when it happens today, when like uh, EFF 
goes to a clicks because of the hair thing and you're like oh they're so barbaric i'm like we we invented this shit 100 in like the 19 whatever 40s 50s we we had our own terrorism because that's what you do that is the language of the unheard is like you Absolutely, you burn yeah. shit but also i don't conde- condone it but it's of just course. what else is left if no one wants to hear 100%. me i'm gonna uh, go to action because the people in power try to preserve power and the people who are not in power try to cause change so when you are trying to cause change to uplift yourself or to fight off an oppressor, you'll do all kinds of things that are in the in the name of trying to fr- to become free and to gain power. But once you're in power, you don't like that behavior coming from others to take away yours. Yeah. Yeah. Do you ever just like chill, Dan? Just watch, <laughs> do you ever just watch yeah. like Real Housewives and just hang well, out? I see. I see. <laughs> I see on Instagram you're big on a Linden. You you go to Linden swimming pool a lot. Love Linden swimming pool. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Right. I just want to get into paddle. You should take me sometime. Oh, dude. Oh, it's the best. It's no, but no, no, you genuinely, I, I heard you saying to Glenn that it's a hundred round a session. That I, I would easily Dude, do that. No, you genuinely, this is not just, oh, the podcast will be friends. <laughs> you must like, you, you must take me. I'll totally take you up there. Um, so, so I am. Um, what are the guilty pleasures, Dan? Come on. No, let's hear no, it. not guilty. I think that I, I'm both a very serious and then a stunningly silly person. Okay. Well, like let's... very, very silly. And that's the only reason why I can do five is I've, I really watch some dumb shit. Okay. And I love laughing at really, really dumb shit. Um, I also love doing really, really dumb shit. A lot of the stuff that we've done on the radio is so inane, but I'm like very proud of it. Nice. Like very, very proud of it. Um, but people don't realize... You can be two things oh, at the same time. You can be a goofball and joke about whatever. But then all of us, you can also talk about like whatever yeah. serious topic yeah. at the table. It's like we can care about two things at the same Absolutely. time. And then it's like we, we more do like du- duality. What's the word? But people well, just, just lay it, guys. Remember yeah. Shrek. Ogres have layers. Onions have layers. <laughs> I have layers, right? I have made more and different derivatives of Kant jokes in the last week on yeah. the radio than anybody else in in the country. Did you see like you, you can you can buy words at so the VRT is the what is what does VRT stand for? Woordenschat Afrikaanse taal. It's like okay. a it's like an official like Gareth Cliff bought a word. He bought um Eitsaikumisi. Okay. So you you buy that you you sponsor the word then I it see. becomes a word. So there's two Afrikaans ladies that bought Kant for Bongi Munami. <laughs> it's so freaking random. <laughs> It's yeah, so but I um, am obsessed with sport, and okay. uh, soccer is my religion. Okay. So on a Saturday, Sunday, and Monday morning after the show, I'll get up three hours before my girlfriend, and I'll watch three hours of soccer highlights. Damn. I support a club in every, basically every country in the world. Never country. Okay. I can tell you Who's your local support. team? Uh, Orlando Pirates. Um, the happy people forever. I am literally the ghost um, of Orlando Pirates, and then obviously Cape Town City and Ajax Cape Town because that's where I was born and raised. Um, but like all around the world, I, I can tell you players, I can tell you their histories, I can tell you. The other day, I was at a wedding and I saw an old mate of mine, and we had a long and spirited discussion about the 1994 Champions League final, which took place less than a year after I was born. And like we knew all the players, we knew what happened. So like soccer is my thing. Rugby during World Cups in particular. Love cricket, but like when I really want to chill i watch uh late night television i love performance live performance so what's like, so like colbert stewart okay. uh, nice. noah whatever Oliver. you would um, kill it like you a, would um, kill as john, john oliver's like a, like a oh john my. oliver t- the thing with those shows is you need like 10 writers I that's know. like Dan, Nobel come Peace Prize on, writers. Make those, you know what i make because you make the videos that feels like 10 writers writing that no stuff. i know and and i've actually got one researcher and one uh for so, that videos 
So for the for the YouTube video for, for the show for, for the show the issue with Dan Quarter, which by the way is a perfect homage to and ripoff of the problem with John Stewart because John well, Stewart oh, is yeah, you're my right. he's got the Apple Show I think so yeah so yeah. like people, the Apple Show I don't know pe- Apple show. <laughs> people usually talk about like the Daily Show that he did in the 2000s sure. I was never a huge fan of that but what he's doing right now is exactly what I think South Africa doesn't have. Yeah. And if no one else is going to do it, I'm going to do it. Do but it. you, you love John Oliver as well. Oh, that, uh, yeah. That I just watched his McKinsey thing. And then I called all my mates who went He's to work for so McKinsey. <laughs> no way. Dude, there's, there's two... I don't know if you've been in this building. There's two incredible studios here. There's a massive studio next door. Oh, yeah? Massive. Like 10, 20 cars can wow, fit in there. okay. And there's a smaller one that's like three times the size of this office. So the infrastructure is here. Really? Bro. I'll call you. No, it's incredible. I think, Come I think on, Dan. For a country, this, it's strange. Like there's no, there's not a, there's not a late night talk show for, for yeah. a country with our kind of history and politics and everything is going down now. There's not a, there's not one challenge. So I think the format is built for South Africa and it breaks my heart that it hasn't happened. Yeah. Um, and if you, if you, you need you, someone brave enough, that's the thing. If you now with this lens of understanding my love for this exact thing, go back and watch, you will realize that that's actually what I'm built. Yeah, exactly. Like, okay. so, so the YouTube episodes and podcasts are the proof of concept of that. hundred yeah. percent. The sad thing about those is that we spend so much time writing the facts that I can't be funny. There's not enough time in a week well, to write the jokes. But I think that so a bunch of people have tried late night before here. Trevor did it a bit. Loisa did it a bit. I remember. But no disrespect to them or the teams who made them. I think there was a fundamental, not necessarily problem, but a thing that I didn't like about it, which is that um, they had ten comedy writers. Now mm. that's great. But the reason why John Oliver and John Student is so good is that they've Facts. got ten researchers yeah. and ten comedy writers. So like. What I understand deeply about the radio is you need to build the world within the jokes can exist, right? So your job, if you want to talk about, I I, I spoke about this um, this wild story of this plane with uh, bombs and uh, sorry uh, guns and stacks yeah, the, of um, American the, the, dollars and gold on it in Zambia happened in Zambia about yeah. three months ago and it arrived from Egypt. Nobody knew who the plane, whose it was, whatever. Now I only spoke about that because I was like, this isn't going to make South African news, but if I if I describe the context enough, then it becomes a live story in the audience's mind and then we can talk about it for two weeks. And I think that with South African politics, the work that you have to do is create the world first. Mm. Like you can't just tell a joke about Fikile Mbulula because the vast majority of South Africans have radically different levels of understanding of who Fikile is and what he's about. Um, And so I hope one day to be able to do and not just a late night show because there is a variance within them. Mm. But what John Stewart is doing right now is what I want to do, yeah. which is He's heavy facts, yeah. hard interviews, and and it's one topic. He, he, he deep dives into topic, one thing, and then a humorous frame. Yeah. So he does laugh because the thing is, I'm not a stand up comedian. I am funny. I make people laugh, yeah, but like my funny. main thing is I can be funny in the way that I talk about stuff. Yeah. So my dream and where I perfectly sit on this dial because you were talking about layers and duality of man and whatever, like I um, or have always known that I'm 70% very serious and 30% funny. And so John, what John Student is doing right now is 70% very serious and very thoughtful and educative and informative and 30% funny. And what I want to do is give that to South Africa. Yeah. And I want lots of people to do it. I think that I think yeah. we need lots of it, but that's what I want to do. I think it's going to live online. I, I, I can't see it live on a channel just because... The, like DSTV and SABC is like two different there's two different worlds I That's think true. they watch it and also just just to get get the attention of everyone hey listen there's a late night show like 
I know no, people that's yeah. never going to watch an SABC show, and I know people that's never going to watch a DSTV show. But it feels like the answer is online because it'll live on your phone. To call me or, or or show Max to call me. That's all. Yeah. That I, really I don't want. know. I think you should. I mean, sure, John Oliver does his thing on HBO, but then he has the clips on YouTube, and I think that's what yeah. gets watched yeah. most anyway. I think people will throw money, dude. But I'll, I, dude, if you ever need, like, I love stuff like that. Like okay. one of my. Strong points is looking at something and and punchline pimping it right. to make it funny. So so yeah. you I'm I'm like you telling me to take you to battle. Is it is this real I'm friendship? <laughs> yeah, no, I'm telling you, dude, but this I love. Beautiful to watch. Like, I get it. I get a <laughs> kick out of like yeah. looking at something, going, oh, this is a joke. Yeah, so you, you must hit me up if you ever need a little. Uh, yeah. a, a you remind me of Yasin so much because Yasin will call me and be like. I need to set up for this punchline and when we'll work. And then I'll be I like, love I, that guy. I need to make I, I need to make Star Wars funny and, and we'll go. Yeah. yeah. So like my my vision is because it's expensive and people need to be paid. So right now I have a model which can pay uh, Eric, the sound engineer, who's also one of the most extraordinary academics you've ever met. He's so smart. So he does a lot of research. So I'll guide him and then we'll combine our knowledge. And then um, Eric edits the podcast and then James, uh, who's an amazing videographer, will do the YouTube videos and then I essentially do TikTok and I do brand partnerships on TikTok to fund that project to pay them a wage and as soon as I can make it enough money either through show sponsorship or personal sponsorship to to pay comedy writers I'll do that yeah. and then it will exist yeah. I, I don't think that I'm close but I feel like I'm one or two brand deals away. Yeah, but no, it's so we'll uh, nothing's going to change in this country. If we're going to have forever <laughs> content. There's going to be. It's going to happen. It's just. Yeah. I mean, you're super talented. So you, you're one of those people that's going to. I mean, you're, you're you're like one of the only TikTok channels that's actually. It's all little. Your stuff goes viral because it's not a little stupid dancey or it's Yo. actually like I mean, w like the stuff you do like the, the Afrikaner one with the rugby team, the New Zealand mm. one. Those things. It's a hundred thousand views. It's whack, dude. And yeah. it shows you people are hungry for deeper cooler content yeah so we're gonna try we're gonna try but now that you know that that's actually what i'm trying to do yeah. everything you see online from me will make sense yeah. it's the same thing yes. it's exactly it's the a same. long game do you know just a side note because yeah. i watched the new zealand one last night your, uh -huh. your video i also did research on that way back mm. and like apparently the new zealand team when they started touring here they would always have like rugby clinics in the oh, yeah? in the um uh, wow, the colored communities really that's why they so, so much fans because because it's like, yeah, well, this guy was here two weeks ago learning me how to pause. Of course, yes. I'm going to um, support them. That, yeah, so that's one of the other that. reasons. That's so interesting. I, I, I'll, I'll send you his number. He's a fascinating guest. He was on the show as well, Vainant Larson. Okay. He was a Supremo captain in that millibomb test where they yes. went to New Zealand and they threw the millibomb on the field yes. because of apartheid. Yes. He was the captain of that team. Wow. He lives in Pretoria. Amazing guest, dude. Fascinating interview. Flippin' cool guy, yeah. And he and the, and he was like the white captain. And he had to face the New Zealand media in the yeah, 80s, like. So why uh, why is there no black? Here? Yeah, yeah. fascinating. They were mad, like, dude. we just want to play rugby. Send me the podcast. Look, I can, <laughs> I can understand 90% of Afrikaans. It's just my montes biastardig. So I can't form the gedachtes to come back for you. Yeah. But I often because I because I started on Good Up FM, right? Where 70% of the listeners are like home Jack or like mix it. Well, yeah, so home language Afrikaans, but Twitter. And so yeah. I'd often have callers who speak in Afrikaans and I'd respond in English. So I can do it. So I, send me the podcast. I want to hear yeah. it. Yeah, you can just listen. I mean, podcast, you don't have to speak. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> you can just listen to it. But yeah, there's some yeah. interesting, yeah, I had like, like fun people. I had like a guy that was like, 18 years old and they they planted the, the bomb in Wooster uh, oh. with the kids. I had him on the yes. show. I had Adrian Flock on, which is like That's the, wild. he was like Flock, the police minister no, during Flock Plus. Yeah. No, I love wow. stuff like that. But but my my point is just, 
I'm Afrikaner and I'm in the entertainment industry. I love comedy. I love sketches. Yeah. I love everything about this. But I also love our country that I want to talk about everything that happened. You have it's to. Like, you uh, have to. It was like the, someone always said, like, it's like dad hit mom at the dinner table and now everyone just wants to keep on eating yeah, as if I nothing mean, happened. I just want to talk do. about these things. But dude, that's it from my side. Lord Lee, I don't know if you have another question left. No. Thank you guys. This yeah. was so Thank much fun. You. We appreciate it so much, dude. This means you have no idea how much this means to me this that you great. said yes. No, of course, guys. Yeah. I mean, I really I listened to a bunch of these pods um before I didn't know before, but like after you uh, approached me and you guys are doing a really good job. Thanks. Like man. the interviews are really Thank cool. The questions fun. are really good. You both are very good interviewers. I've really enjoyed this. Thanks. Thanks, man. Appreciate Thank it. Thank you. Have a lack of day and uh, can't wait for that next politician. We'll keep an eye out. Yeah, I'll tell you. And you guys must go paddling. Yeah, we will go paddle. Yeah. We'll put the proof on the Instagram <laughs> <laughs> that you went paddling. Um, so quick, so on TikTok, it's just Dan Quarter. Yeah, it's Instagram. either Dan Quarter or it's Dan Quarter on air, depending on what plan, uh, okay, planet. Okay. And you, planet every day you're from 6 to 9 on the radio. On 5, five Breakfast. Yeah, wherever you are in the country. Yeah. Also in weird places in the world. But you got Afrikaans co-host, dude. Madli van Eden. Yeah, dude. Yeah, of course. That's of awesome. course. No, it's very good. We are the rainbow nation that Desmond Tutu prayed for. <laughs> uh, on our show, we have genuinely, to. if you look at it, you're like, yes, see. <laughs> you know when you watch those adverts? You know when you watch those adverts and you're like, yo, these creators were like, we are going to do yeah. a Mandela wanted. It's like, and it's like one gay guy and one straight woman yeah. and everyone is colored or black and white and colored and Chinese. Yeah, and, and Where's the, we need Afrikaans going cocky clothing. Yeah. It is just, That's I funny. feel like that was oh. like the millennial mm. boomer ads. And now yeah. we're finally getting to the point where we can go, fuck that actually, guys. Come on, that's not what South Africa looks <laughs> yeah, like. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly. Anyway, well, thanks, guys, Dan. Have a lucky weekend. And go, Boca, what's your prediction? Oh, we're going to win. I cannot. We're definitely going to win. 7 1 split in the pouring rain. We're going to run over. 7 them. I was like, are we sure? Are we sure? We're no, we're going to run over them. And if it rains, nine. we're going to win. We, no, it's going to pour, apparently. Oh, really? No, I reckon we're going to win. I, I, I just reckon we're going to win. We're watching. Are you like a, a, a fan park kind of guy? Or you're at, the, at home with the iPad? I'm definitely not a fan park kind of guy. Uh, sorry, at home kind of guy. For me, it's like when a country has a communal experience, you have to be there. Yeah, yeah. So I'm going to go to Acid Bar, which is around the corner from me. Uh, Acid Bar, which was just nominated for an Eat Out Award and is on the New York Times for the one place in Joburg you have to eat if you come to Joburg. What? So nice. you guys should come. It's run Acid by a friend Bar. of mine, Jess Doveton. She's an extraordinary chef. Nice. Yes. I'm sure you guys have your own plans, but uh, acid, you must go. Okay, good name. Thanks, Dan. Let's see how so the book takes it. Yeah. This is the part of the podcast where we, we pretend that I leave the second the podcast. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> and there's no more talking. Yeah, cheers, guys. <laughs>